Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is John Jeffcock. John is the CEO of Winmark, a world-leading C-suite network business. Uh, John, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. Great to be with you, Scott. Pleasure having you with us as well, John. Um, I think a good place to start, of course, would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that is the fact that we're recording this on June 14th, 2021. So even though we're hopefully going to be moving out of social restrictions very soon, fingers crossed, we are still somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic, and we have been for the best part of the last 14 months, haven't we? So with all of that in mind, to what extent has this whole situation affected you and your business, would you say? It's had a it's had a, a, a significant impact, um, both highly negative and both highly positive. So on the negative side, it's certainly for a a professional services, depending on, on on what you did. The 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 initial impact of COVID was worse than the financial crisis. The completely to put that in context, the, the, the problem with the fact the the problem with, with with COVID is no one knew when it was going to end. In the financial crisis, you knew it would go down, it would come up again. So there was some hope. It was just a question of time. Whereas for the um, where for the COVID nineteen hit, we, we had no experience to look back on, and therefore people were, were I think m- more scared than they had been before. Same thing happened in terms of um, corporate spending. Corporate spending was, was hammered. Does that make sense? The, the, mm-hmm. the all external spend was cancelled for all the HR consultancies and all those people out there. Um, I, I think and training companies suffered enormously under it. I, I know a lot of companies went under as part of of, of the process, but. I'm saying that those that survive will come out better as stronger companies. So, so in a way, they, they start the post-COVID world in a more competitively stronger place. And of course, working with a C-suite network business, as you do, John, you work closely regularly with FTSE and Fortune companies, and you also work with state departments, businesses, school institutes, private individuals to help them sort of develop their networks. Um Therefore, I suppose you're in quite a good position to understand what the key sort of lessons from this pandemic have been. Um, what are some of those, do you think? What have people come away from this, having learned from this situation? Wow, in terms of learning points, I think there have been, there've been um, so so many. Uh, um, the, I think the whole way leadership works has, has, has changed. I think most companies did their digital pitches quite effectively. They didn't... Uh, uh, um, had a massive cheap team, uh, teams change. I know it's in the private equity space, lots of CEOs changed sales because not all of them stood up to, to the pandemic as such. But on the leadership communications-wise, you know, all those water-cooler movements have been missed. And so, so the clarity of communication, the managed communication has had to go up dramatically. There's been much recognition of different groups within companies because you've been looking for their homes, uh, um, through sort of teams and the Zoom and all those things. So there's a mm. broader diversity of communication going out. And that, that means that leaders have to think much deeper um, ahead of doing things because they, they need, they need to, to take into consideration all the different groups that they're speaking to. Whereas before, they might have looked at, on, at, at it as one 
um, single group as such. And um, you know, that the behavior of leadership has changed. There's been uh, much more stuff around empathy and humility, uh, empathy to, towards the visible understanding. You, know, you had certainly in the younger group of, of, of workers, you had a lot of people sitting on their beds, you know, working on their beds with that for, for, for many, many months. So it's been very tough lack issues around wellness and health and uh, mental health around that. Um, those things have been very good, you know, humility, they need to be showing greater humility and they've been showing that they're more sort of vulnerable, I think is probably the way we put it, admitting their own mistakes and showing that humans have been really important. Mm. I had a really interesting, well, I don't know, from an HR director recently, um, but she said, well, when COVID happened, corporates moved into a sort of, in a way, parent-child relationship and corporates became the parents. And it's now time to to move back to to adult adult, adult relationship, and 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 that, and, that, and that is gradually taking place. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Leaders certainly have had to sort of become a little bit more vulnerable and show their human side a lot more. And I think almost amend their leadership styles when it's come to managing teams remotely, because I suppose it's very easy to pick up on certain cues, for example, when you're in a room with a lot of people working on something. And then when you're doing it from afar, it's a little bit different. Um, Have you found that you've had to sort of adapt to remote working yourself within your own business, John? And if you have, how has that been? as a process for you oh yeah uh, we, we, we definitely have so so we i mean i have to say i was a i was an old-fashioned person <laughs> and i was quite anti-remote working uh and now i'm a complete convert to it um the so we we have uh, I, I don't know if it was uh, uh, shutting down offices and, and that kind of thing but what, what we've done instead of that we've um, got rid of a third of our desks and we turned a third of our, our office space in, into a we work area We've got some sensors and coffee tables and, 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 and that kind of thing there. So it's changed the way we do operate. We also had people all um, moved houses during doing things. They got much more long commutes. Um, I remember actually when it all kicked off about a month in, I said, you know, should we have a working from home allowance? And email out the team saying, you know, would, would you like this? What should it include? How much should it be? And that kind of thing. I got an email back from one saying, hey, you don't understand. We saved so much money on the commute. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, I think that from a so I think we, so we're, we're doing a soft return to work and we'll probably be two, three days a week, which I think is what most professional professional organisations will do. The problem we've got though, I think, particularly in, you know, I was talking to uh, John Lewis on, on, on Friday, mm. people there, and they've got an issue, it's, it's fine for the office workers to work from home, but still on the shop floor obviously can't do that. So there's already a divide between the sort of shop floor, manufacturing floor and the office workers. And, and I think working from home could, you know, could, could, could increase that, so I think corporates going to have to think very carefully about that that sort of that divide and, and and how they offset that by by giving the people in the um, on the short floor and the manufacturing lines equal benefits. That makes sense. I think that makes perfect sense and I think that's very very right because your corporate organisations really do have to consider that making sure that there isn't that divide between management and between those on the ground I think that's very very true because I think the importance of those sort of key on the ground workers have been amplified certainly during the course of the year the pandemic so that is something that they have to look at very very carefully and with that in mind do you think that if we eventually do get to a point where Covid itself is no longer an immediate and present danger there is room for the office to sort of return in vogue as it was pre-pandemic or do you think that the hybrid approach of flexible working some days a week and working in the office others is going to be the status quo okay i think that the um, 
the 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 wind mark the wind, the, the, the wind mark um, approach. Yeah, it, yeah, it, 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 it's going to be, I think, a permanent two to three days a week. Uh, but the, the, the big problem comes with when you start to onboard people. Um, so I think when you onboard people, you certainly need them to to, 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 to be around for for a while. See, I also think there's a issue. I, I read a wonderful book years ago um, called. Walking from dandelions, and the general remit of the book is that eighty percent of the population tends to be dandelions. But it doesn't matter where you drop them; they're going to be fine. Whereas twenty percent tends to be orchids, and and orchids blossom under the right environment, but also suffer heavily in the wrong environment. So they're much more, they're much more sensitive to the environment. I think one of the things that's been raised with us, so it's quite an interesting issue to consider, is a lot of people because they've worked for them so long now. Is they, they've in a way taken taken a psychological step out of the organisation, a bit like whistleblowing. You know, but prior to whistleblowing, you know, you, you whistleblow because your line management failed, mm. and therefore you decide to step out of the organisation psychologically. And I think lots of people have done that during the process of COVID. And therefore, one of the things that we need to do is bring that particular 15, 20 percent of people back into back, back into the office and, and community, and, as a, and get them back into feeling feel belong to the organisation. Because that doesn't happen, they become affected to. To the organisation because they, they might they're more, more likely to do things with, with, which are not respectful. That makes sense. It does make sense. And something as well that's very well much tied to that is also the mental health and well-being of individual people. And that's certainly something that we focused on an awful lot during the pandemic as well as a society. So from managing that side of things, how has that been for yourself within Winmark, do you think? Has it been quite an easy process or have you sort of had to deal with one or two anxious faces throughout the last year or so? Um, <laughs> I always think I'm the wrong person to ask this, 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 this question because I'm a former sort of infantry captain. So my, mm. my version of mental health is different to others. But on saying that, one of the things actually that the, the military is very good actually, odd enough, is at mental health because you, you need to look after yourself just make sure, make sure okay. So we've done, here we've done lots of ring rounds, make, make sure everyone's okay, particularly uh, single people who might be all living on their own, who might be more exposed to mental health. We've, um, we, we've done that. We've done a lot of um, social activities to try and keep our body on board. You know, we've onboarded and we lost people during COVID, as we do over the course of the year. Um, so we've tried to do lots of, sort of quizzes. We had quiz, quiz last Thursday and things. We've done track all events and that kind of thing. There is a, there is a, it, it is much harder because you can't put your arms around people. And so you, you need to reach out more, more, more permanently. And certainly one of the things we've also done is find up one of these sort of mental health health signs that make sense so everyone can access that. If, if they need to, because a lot of the reasons for mental health issues may not be directly related to the corporate. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the, the conditions might change their environment, and their their environment might put stress, stresses upon them. You know, we've had people homeschooling, so they've been working at night. You know, male and female. It's not. It's happening both sides of the fence. I think so. So, and, and that's a lot more stressful, particularly if you're doing doing terms by. But getting the schools back was a huge help on the mental health thing. I think, but it's been very tough for. Uh, a lot of people no, no question about that mm. and the same goes for business leaders themselves doesn't it um, within the leaders council actually over the last few weeks we've been talking an awful lot about the impact of sort of stress and ceo burnout for instance and i think when you do get sucked into that survival mode mentality of you have to sort of look after everything make sure everybody is in the right headspace make sure all of the appropriate mechanisms are in place you can almost sort of neglect to look after yourself sometimes can't you um, is that something that you've sort of found 
easy having to sort of step back and recharge the batteries when you need to, or have you been very much sort of in the mix and doing everything throughout the last few months? I think that's a, I think that's a really good, good question because I think it's, it's often uh, overlooked. The, and to give you some idea of, of, of the flavour of that, so, uh, so, so, so we run here a, a, a successful UK SME. The, um, when, I, when it COVID happened, I rang around my peer group, if that makes sense, of, of CEOs, mm-hmm. and every single one had dropped their pay to zero. 100% of them had done it. That's really interesting. So not only were these people working their, their butts off to try and keep the company to flow, they put a pay to zero that made sure that their employees were, were paid. And a lot of organizations, including us, went to a, a, a 8% pay level, level for three months or something, something like that. So that was, that was a lot of duress. And the CEOs and the teams just didn't take any holiday. There was no, you know, we, we, you had to, our, our role as C-suite was to keep the organization alive. And to do that, you had to work your, your butt off, I think. The, so I took my first holiday uh, over half term, over half term. So I went to Fresco um, in the city I was city um, about a, a, a week ago, but, but that, that was literally my first week off in, in a year and a half, I think. Yeah, and I think it is important to be able to take that sort of time away and recharge the batteries, as I say. And I think when you talk about using a peer group, I think that's one of the best things that you can do as a business leader, communicate and recognize that during a crisis, you're certainly not alone and to network with other people and share ideas. I think it is really important. We talked about that keyword learning from experience during the crisis, but we can also learn from each other, learn from the experiences that we've had individually as well. And I think that sort of communication continuing over the course of the uh, the next few months, so we hopefully move out of the crisis. That's also going to be something that's really, really important for the recovery as a whole, isn't it? Yeah, I'm trying to that. And, and, and that's at two levels also. That is, um, that's sort of, Operational sort of tactical level of, of what can you do to make working from home work and that and, and that kind of thing and it can be look at mental health issues that you raise and it can look at operational issues like you know how do you teams and or even that kind of how do things actually physically work but it's also needs to look at it at a strategic level you know how do you conceptually level conceptualise your or your organisation in the future what sort of or, or, or organisation are you and you get a feel of that we. Um, we uh, post COVID were operating really in, in London and Manchester, and had a sort of, we were looking at a fledgling business in Amsterdam and mm. um, and Dublin, and we're now open in Las Vegas, Karachi, Madrid, mm. Budapest, Vienna. Uh, we're able to open up in sixteen cities since it happened because we can now because it's digital. If that makes sense. So mm. it has that completely changes culture of your of your, your organisation. So there are. So many more complexities. The whole international thing has become, you know, because most of our members are in the C-suite, so they're all sort of tend to be, not all of them, they tend to be forty plus in age, and and because of that, the the whole team of Zoom thing was 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 very was was very new to them. So it's become a very, in a way, it's become a very good thing that now all on this system, it's become very inclusive because you couldn't access before because they might have parental. Um, responsibilities or responsibilities can now access our, our meetings and things. So I think it's been a, a very positive thing from that side. And I, I always said, you know, I, I remember when I was in the army, if you get stuck in a trench with someone for six months, you get to know them quite well. And I would think, in one way, it's been very, I know sometimes stuck on a bit, but a lot of families I know have benefited enormously from, from it. You know, they're much closer relationship to the children. Um, I know some families have, have, have 
spoken up on the back of it, but, but many have also um, blossomed on the back of it, I think. So I think it's, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to, to, tell, to see how history tells a story. And strategically, I think it's going to be very interesting how corporate then sort of reorganize that because the business model's changing. And then you've got all mm. this, uh, you know, all the new stakeholders coming in, sustainability, the, the, um, the, the diversity, inclusion, and belonging taking place. It's a lot. It's a lot for management to change all at the same time, and so it, so it is. I think it's been exhausting for for most C-suite teams to to, to go through it. Mm. And it's a very interesting and a very changing time for British industry, I think. And as we start to sort of get an idea as to what the sort of picture is going to look like as the clouds lift and we move out of the COVID period, um, what are your hopes for yourself and Winmark, John, would you say? And um, what are you really hoping to achieve maybe this time in a year as we move out of lockdown? <laughs> I think, you know, you've got lockdown, you've also got Brexit. <laughs> mm. You've got a bit of a double whammy on that one, so I don't think anyone would have chosen the timing of Brexit at the same time as lockdown. If that makes sense, that was uh, that was just poor timing. The uh, I, I, I generally think that um, the world is is going to be a better, better place. You know, we've lifted a billion people out of out of poverty in the last across the planet uh, in the last sort of I think what is it last 20, 30 years, and I think that will continue. The, the I've got a very very positive out of the world. I think what we cannot afford to do is for the UK to come insular in, in with thinking. And I know that you know when, when the Brexit vote happened, I remember sitting back thinking, do you know what? <laughs> People like me are going to have to make this work. <laughs> we don't get our act together. The whole place is going to fall apart. And so um, I do think we've got a possibility. We now have to run very fast. Uh, um, and the way, the way to do that is, is, is trade. And uh, I'm not convinced by the current trade deals going, going, going through the impact of it. Because obviously you always trade more with your neighbours than you do people um, miles away. Mm. But there is the, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Factfulness. There's, the, there's, there's that great barcode, which is the current population of the world is, is 1114. So it's 1 billion in America, 1 billion in Africa, 1 billion in Europe, and 4 billion in Asia. It's going to go to 1145, which is, one billion in America, one billion in your in Eurasia, and four in billion Africa, and five billion in Asia. Just that means the whole shift of weight of is going to shift to the sort of Indian Ocean and, and, and to that and to, the, and, and to that area there. So I think there's a there's a proper opportunity there, but we do need to go for it. We need to be much more entrepreneurial, much more dynamic in our thinking. There are there are two thousand people in the Department of International Trade, and they really need to get their act together and start start doing stuff. Um, I think there's, there's lots to do. But we need to start thinking like people thought 200 years ago, um, rather than what people think today. Less concerned about process, more concerned about making stuff happen. I think that's very right. And I think we certainly do need to, at the political level, stop squabbling over trade as is happening as we speak at the moment and really start to look at solutions. And I'm not sure, of course, whether the G7 um, over the last few days has necessarily helped the case, but we'll keep an eye on that one for sure. Um, we are Thank just you. about um, out of time, unfortunately, uh, John, but I have to say it's been a real eye-opening experience welcoming you onto the uh, the programme and I've thoroughly enjoyed having you uh, with us. And um, I think as we start to get more of an idea of how the landscape is shifting, Shifting um, over the course of the next few months, I'd actually love to invite you back onto the program and just discuss exactly what's changed and where we're heading. Because, as I say, I really enjoyed today. Okay, uh, that was wonderful, and, uh, and it's great to talk, talk to you, Scott.
It's been wonderful speaking to yourself as well, John. And just because we're not quite out of the woods with the whole COVID situation just yet, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Yeah, you too, and to all your listeners. Yes, of course. To everybody tuning into the podcast today, please do continue to look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Better times are coming and we are almost there, I'm sure. It was a pleasure today for me to welcome John Jeffcock, CEO of Winmark, onto the programme. And uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be giving his take on the goings-on of the last few months and his hopes for the weeks ahead that will be coming up next Lord Blunkett welcome thank you very much it's very good to be with you Um, well of course uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19 which uh, we must touch on Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, 
the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate 
the essential Cobra meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.